Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, today, I have Rob Wolf. He's a former research biochemist. Uh, he's a two times New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and now Wired to Eat. Uh, so we're going to talk about his uh, his latest work. So, Rob, thanks for coming back. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell me a bit about um, your background. How did you get into the world of health and diet and fitness? It's a long story. I'll try to keep it brief, but I've always been interested in health, human performance and whatnot. Had a pretty significant health crisis myself 20 plus years ago. I had ulcerative colitis so bad that I was facing either a bowel resection or, or you know, immunosuppressant drugs or a combination of wow. those. And it was kind of a, a I, I would, I'm about, I'm five foot nine, about 170 pounds at the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis. I was about 125, 130 pounds. So I, I was pretty rough shape. And it was kind of an act of desperation that this idea of, you know, an ancestral diet or a paleo type diet got on my radar. And I, it's kind of an interesting story how, how I came to that, but I, I tinkered with it. It was hugely beneficial for me. And I started working with a, a lot of people not too long after that, I, I found this weird workout online called CrossFit and in, ended up going on to co-found the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. And so had this opportunity oh, cool. to work with, uh, you know, people from all walks of life. Uh, I worked for a number of years with the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program, you know, working with the SEALs, the special boat teams and their families, uh, you know, all the way to 
just schleps like myself who, who have these complex autoimmune and gut related issues. And that's kind of what I've been doing the past 23 years. You know, there's, there's been a lot of other twists and turns along the way, but it was kind of a personal health crisis that launched me into this scene. I was very early in the CrossFit, you know, world and got to kind of ride along with that and have worked with a pretty wide variety of people along the way. Well, very good. So you have you settled in that, uh, I guess the paleo diet is really the optimal one that you found for yourself and for others, or in terms of diet and food intake, what's your current, your most recent perception of um, what works for people? What works for people is hugely varied. I I think that a, a paleo type template is a really nice restart because if you have somebody that has eaten a pretty terrible diet their whole life. Like, you know, they were, they were raised on stuff that comes out of boxes and bags and, and cans, and they just have absolutely no basis for what, you know, sound nutrition looks like. Some sort of a lowish carb paleo type thing is a, a pretty good reset. It's a pretty good place to just kind of wipe the slate clean and get started again. And then, you know, from there, I, I have found a bit of a universality that if people eat adequate protein, they tend to reasonably easily maintain good body weight, good body composition, pretty good metabolic health. And then from there, they, you know, if we figure out with folks, whether they run better on some fat or some carbs or a combo, that's kind of the way that I've whittled things down these days. But, you know, if there's one universality that I, I do tend to see, it's that People who struggle with body composition and like appetite control and whatnot, they pretty universally are under eating protein. And that has a tendency to allow them to overeat everything else. Okay. So what is this uh, wired to eat concept and uh, book? What's it about? Wired to Eat was my my second book, and it really digs into the neuroregulation of appetite. And, and I, I guess the the book is kind of two-pronged different from my first book. The, the first part is really laying out this case for personalized nutrition and personalized, you know, response to different foods. And the second part is, is a really quantifiable way of testing foods using a blood glucose monitor to see how folks respond to individual foods and also, uh, you know, a, a given meal. And so it, it you know, really builds off a, uh, the, the next 10 years of my, I, I guess, career, my work, figuring things out, working with lots of folks. But the, the two big parts to that is, is just some, some recognition from the scientific literature that there's a remarkable range of responses that folks can have to different foods. Uh, and, you know, I, I could eat a cup of rice and have nearly diabetic blood sugar levels my wife could eat the, t- the same cup of rice and her blood sugar barely, barely budgets, which is far preferable, but I, I'm not her. So I, I need to find ways of eating that are, are different. And so, you know, it's a recognition of that individuality and then also provide some, some framework using blood glucose monitors so that people can individualize and customize their nutrition to really, really dial it in for their, their specific needs. Yeah. Why do you think there's such variation in people? What are the underlying reasons or possible reasons? You know, there was, that's a really great question. And uh, some research that came out of the Weizmann Institute uh, in Israel, they looked at genetic factors, epigenetic factors, like our gut microbiome, uh, some different blood lipid considerations and whatnot, but there seems to be an interplay between our our genetics, 
and then the way our genetics are modified over a lifetime, like the number of times we've taken antibiotics, if our vitamin D status is adequate, if we exercise or are sedentary. So, you know, there's the genetic piece, probably the gut microbiome piece. And then a, another big factor is uh, physical activity. I, I think that we, if all of us were able to go for a 20 minute walk after a, a meal, it would clean up a lot of the, uh, and, and this isn't a calorie thing. It's a hormonal thing. It's, it's uh, facilitating the storage of glucose without huge amounts of, of insulin, the storage hormone that usually helps us to, to manage blood glucose levels. But I, I think a little bit of physical activity, you know, factored in with genetics and epigenetics are, are kind of the big factors that, you know, modify how somebody responds to a, a given meal, at least from a glycemic perspective. What are the limits of variation that you've observed? Like what is not good for anybody that you've seen and what is good for, I, I, I don't know, has, has there been any curious foods that, or diet plans that are good for a very, very small amount of people and some that are good for nobody and some that seem to be good for most people? I would say that liquid sugar, liquid carbohydrates, like, you know, sugary beverages, juices, sugary coffee drinks, those are pretty uniformly bad. And, it, you know, and I'll really backstop that with the, the following. Uh, 20 years ago, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This is where the, the liver basically becomes marbled and a block of fat and is, it, it dies. It, it becomes non-functional. This was unheard of in children 20 years ago. And this is one of the most rapid, rapidly increasing metabolic diseases. Like it, it is an epidemic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And where this ends up ultimately is the individual either needs a liver transplant or they're, they're going to die. And so we've seen this explode within, you know, youthful populations. And one of the, the most prominently, you know, changed features of, of the diet is that kids just consume huge amounts of liquid sugar. And so I, I think that that's one that is just about universally a bad move. You know, all the parents that are taking their kids to like youth soccer and the kids kind of scratch around in the grass for 45 minutes. The little Jimmy doesn't need a 32 ounce Gatorade after that. Like he, he barely broke a sweat. Mm. He, he hasn't even finished usually digesting the bowl of cereal, the toast and the, the juice that he was fed at breakfast. And so, but, you know, just being very aware that dietary liquid carbohydrate is a bad move on, on the, you know, okay. the kind of weird and wacky stuff. Before we continue. I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. thing with that is that any, just about anything will work or will be an improvement for at least someone at some point. You know, if somebody has been eating very, very poorly and they have terrible sleep and they're on shift work and uh, they're drinking tons of liquid carbohydrates and they're basically 
type two diabetic becoming non-alcoholic, uh, uh, fatty liver, and a, you know they have gout. There's almost nothing that person could do that wouldn't make things better. You know, I mean, if they do the cabbage soup diet or they, you know, eat one cookie a day diet, there's almost no way they can screw that up. You know, it, 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 they're doing literally everything wrong that, that, that one could imagine and criticizing them, but it, it's just kind of the reality. So almost anything will work initially, particularly if, if the individual is pretty far gone. But the, the challenge, the real challenge is sustainability. I mean, the, there is a reality that everybody in this health space faces. Most people don't stick to or succeed long-term with, you know, weight loss and dietary changes. It's a very small number of folks who do. Uh, I, I forget the stats off the top of my head. I think I have them there in the beginning of Wired to Eat, but, you know, it's something like 140 million Americans, like half of America starts a diet each year and, and, uh, on average, most of those people retry it four to five times within the year. And, it, it, you know, compliance and sticking to it is just a remarkably challenging. So, you know, you've been in this game for a long time. What is some of the newest changes in perception you've had or some of the newest nuances about what you do and what you know, what you see in people? Really good question. Definitely the acknowledgement that e- each person is different and that even the needs of an individual will will change over time. So I, I did have the opportunity to work with a, a good number of Navy SEALs as part of the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program. And it, it was interesting to see those guys, very tough, very robust, hard to break them. But when they would start doing a deployed you know, night ops, where they're awake all night wearing night vision goggles, and then they sleep during the day and use Ambien to go to sleep and then some go pills to wake up and get going. It was interesting that like I would see dietary issues emerge because of the stress of deployment. So say like the individual has no problems with wheat or gluten while they're, they're stateside and their, their lives, although, you know, complex or are relatively lower stress, but then as the stress level ratchets up the ability for that person to tolerate the you know dairy or gluten or some other thing may may decrease because it it's a low level irritant that isn't a big deal until it becomes a big deal because you know the the like stress load of their their whole life ends up catching up with them so i think that that's maybe one of the biggest things that i've seen is is just that you know the variability from person to person is rather large and then the variability of what works for an individual you know situation to situation can also be pretty pretty remarkable If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So what new concepts are you advancing in your Wired to Eat? What are the new things that you're trying to convey to people? You know, I'm making folks aware of the neuroregulation of appetite as one of the the big, I guess, cornerstones and and takeaways within that. And it's it's interesting, like I I have a, I reference a, TV show. It, it's called Man Versus Food. Uh, Adam Rickman was on it. And he would do these eating challenges, you know, and the, the one that I highlight is called the, the kitchen sink ice cream sundae challenge, where the, the person is served literally a, an ice cream sundae in a kitchen sink. And it's like eight pounds of ice cream and, you know, a, a condiments and everything. And yeah, if you finish eating this thing in some, some allotted time, then you win some prize. I'm not really sure what the prize is, but 
Adam gets down to to working on this thing, and he's he's maybe a third of the way through, and you can see the guy starting to turn green and gagging, and he's he's just like bottomed out on yeah yeah I mean, you know as good as an ice cream sundae could be, eight pounds of it are going to become hell. And so what what he does to finish this challenge is fascinating, and it really it gives registered dietitians aneurysms, like they, their brain just doesn't wrap wrap around this stuff because what he ends up doing is he orders a plate of extra salty, extra crunchy French fries. And these French fries are salty, crunchy, umami. They're as different from the, you know, the sweet, cold, sugary creaminess of, of ice cream that you couldn't get to, to more different, you know, kind of flavor exposures. But what he starts doing is he eats a couple of French fries, takes a bite of ice cream, eats a couple of French fries, takes a bite of ice cream. And so he's able to complete this challenge by eating more food. And this is what blows people away. He would have failed to eat the ice cream had he not also had the ability to eat the French fries too. I remember you told me an example of this one packaged food. It wasn't popcorners, but it was something like that. And you actually either figured it out or... Doritos roulette. Yeah, Doritos roulette. Can you talk about wherever you feel... Like you want to insert it, I guess, also insert that too. Yeah. So, I mean, our our diets writ large are more like a buffet than not in a lot of ways, especially when you consider our evolutionary biology and how simple our, you know, our food consumption would have been in the past. So when we have the ability to eat these really complex, multi-flavored, multi-textured, you know, meals, it's very, very easy to overeat. And that it's really well illustrated with that man versus food show. The, the genius from the food manufacturing side is is seen with this Doritos roulette product, which is a an iteration of the classic, you know, Dorito chip, which are amazing. You know, they're delicious. But what they, they did with this is they have a spicy version and it's not uniformly spicy. Some of them are mild, some of them are medium, and a very few chips are like super, super hot. And when you look at this from like an addiction perspective and also from a neuroregulation of appetite perspective, the mixing of the flavor and the palate experience is perfect for encouraging people to eat more because each chip isn't exactly like the one that you had before. And the the extremely hot ones are so hot that you almost get a little bit of like anxiety around the thing. Heart rate goes up. You're like, oh man, when's when's the hot one really going to drop? And this is right in line with what we see with like, uh, you know, when somebody sh- uh, shoots heroin or something like there's a whole ritual before the the process and a h- ritualization and habituation process to it that if we get into some of the, the neuropharmacology or neurophysiology, like it, it really releases dopamine, which entrains this uh, kind of hip- habit, you know, the habit forming element to this. So I did reach out to the folks who who made this product and I asked them a little bit of details and they were actually rather forthcoming with it, which was uh, uh, surprising, but it, it's, um, it's a genius from a food manufacturing perspective, but the, the irony is that most of what we've talked about on the show thus far is really well known, really well understood within say like the manufacturing food circles, the people who are making the junk food that makes us sick. None of this stuff is controversial. All of it is very well understood but yet, if you go to talk to your doctor about the neuroregulation of appetite and, you know, mixed palate experience and stuff, they'll look at you like you have six heads. And uh, it, it's kind of a, a tough thing to to get any buy-in from those folks. 
So why did that person's strategy of eating the French fries and then going back to the ice cream work? And why does this Doritos roulette work to get people to consume it so much? The mid changing in the palate experience, like just a, a change. We, we tend to have some remarkably interesting kind of neural circuitry where even if we're eating something that we enjoy, we will experience what's called palate fatigue. We'll just get bored of, of whatever the item is. And there's some, some good wiring for this. Like uh, any type of food can be toxic if over-consumed. And so if you get bored of it, there will be less likelihood of, you know, getting a toxic dose from something. And then also just from a nutrient profile, as good as blueberries are, blueberries don't provide full, complete nutrition. So if you had a big bowl of blueberries, that's great, but it wouldn't be a bad thing to get, you know, a bit bored with them because it would encourage you to eat some other things. And then you're more likely to get, you know, truly full, complete nutrition. And so that's, that's the reason why it, it worked for Adam Rickman was he was switching up this palate experience. You know, he, he reached the point where he was nearly going to vomit from the, um, the ice cream sundae. But then because he was able to mix up this, this experience and the, the estimate that he had was that the, uh, the plate of French fries was somewhere between 1500 and 2500 calories. Like it was a huge plate of French fries. That's basically a daily caloric allotment for most people that he ate on top of this huge Sunday, which I, I don't know. There was probably 8000 calories in that Sunday, but it, it's again, you know, Worth mentioning, he would have never finished that Sunday without, you know, those French fries there. And then to the Dorito roulettes, they're just taking advantage of this understanding of palate fatigue and novelty. The fact that if we change up our, our eating experience, that we're more likely to eat more food. So in instructing people on what to eat and what not to eat, again, what, how does this change? What, to, what you tell them? What to watch out for? You know, at a really basic level, just making folks aware that highly complex meals can be easily overeaten. And, you know, one of the strategies is to just try to focus on somewhat simpler meals. Like I have this thing called the, the food matrix, which is I have a, a list of five proteins, five veggies, five different cooking oils, and then five spices. And within that, that five by five matrix, there's 225 different meal options. And, you know, you've got like chicken plus broccoli plus olive oil plus ginger, chicken plus broccoli plus olive oil plus garlic, you know, and it, it just goes from there. So finding ways to get enough variety so that we don't go crazy because we're, we're, you know, eating a really monotonous, you know, set of meals, but also not so much variety that it, you know, we have a tendency to overeat. What are the, the remaining holes in terms of understanding? It seems like so many people have written about it, so many people have talked about it, that I guess you would think everything has been discussed. But what do you see are really the, the, the holes in, in the knowledge of nutrition nowadays? We don't, honestly, we'd never probably need to learn anything more about the mechanisms, biochemistry of nutrition, metabolism, like... I don't know that there's really anything to be gained there. The The real challenge is adherence and, and buy-in. And, you know, that's where motivational interviewing, figuring out readiness for change, like it, it's really the implementation side is where all this stuff falls down. There's a very, very few people who will pick up one of my books, read it, and then do it and, and like really do it and, and, 
succeed. There's a few people that do that, but it's of the population at large, only a few of them are, you know, willing to buy a diet book and it far, you know, an even smaller, you know, fractional percentage are, are actually doing what's recommended there. If you get some sort of health coaching, you know what I mean? Even things like the Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and, and stuff like that, they work far better over the long haul than somebody just picking up a book. And it, it, it depends on a couple of factors, like the more actual human interaction that somebody has, the better, you know, interaction they have with a, a coach and somebody that's supporting them. That is a huge, you know, piece of whether or not somebody's going to succeed or fail in something like this. There have been a zillion different apps with billions of dollars in, invested in them trying to, you know, create some sort of Facebook-like, you know, hands-off interaction that that helps people lose weight and get healthy, and none of them work. Like, it, again, it's a person here, a person there, they'll find it helpful. It it, it, uh, it improves their situation just enough. But they it, at the end of the day, that person was ready to just succeed almost no matter what. And uh, the little tool that an app provided is is kind of kind of trivial at that point. But people are still struggling. They, they don't have a, a deep reserve of uh, self-control and, and whatnot. Their success really hinges usually on some sort of a, a group support program. This is where things like CrossFit can be kind of handy, you know, martial arts and, and whatnot, like you're doing something where there's a, a community component to it and your performance kind of matters. And so you're, you're motivated to stick with it and do that. And then the next piece to that is some sort of health coaching. I guess the uh, the environment in which we all live, you know, I, I'm out a lot. So I notice, you know, all the food around you is usually fast food or, you know, like prepackaged stuff. It just everything around you, like the entire environment, the commercials, you know, the ads you see on your phone, people around you, the food around you, just everything is conspiring to get you to eat one way. And then I guess all you have on the other side of the equation is your knowledge and your willpower to eat right. So I, I guess that's probably why most people lose. Yeah. And I mean, we are, that's why the, my second book was titled wired to eat because we, we are wired to eat more and move less. Like that's good evolutionary wiring. And now though we live in a world where we can get food delivered to our front door. Uh, we don't have to lift a finger, you know, virtually to, to get it. And so that plays so poorly and not just any food, but we can get this massive variety of food that is engineered to taste really amazing. And uh, that's a hell of a, a thing to fight against. You know, our, our basic tendency is to eat more food and move less because that's what, that's the reason why humanity is still here that, you know, people did that strategy in the past, but that strategy now is just uh, very maladaptive because we're by and large, you know, wealthy enough and have the infrastructure to, to have access to what is effectively unlimited food for most people. I think there's also decision fatigue because I realize like every day, three to five times a day, you're confronted with, oh, am I hungry? Maybe I should eat something. And then what am I going to eat? So if you have to make a decision, the right decision every day, multiple times a day, chances are you're going to make it wrong at least some of the time. Yeah. And, and you know what, when, when you asked me about some of the, the trends in this space, I uh, gave you a short thrift on that. Intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating is a, a viable 
tool and it kind of addresses that decision fatigue a little bit. And decision fatigue is a, a real factor in this. You know, parents, people who have shift work and whatnot, like they, they're, if you're tired, your decision fatigue is, is just massive. You know, if you've already made a lot of, of big decisions, but a lot of people are unwilling to change what they eat. They're, they're not really going to clean up the composition, at least not initially, but telling people, Hey, if you just eat between the hours of say like 10 AM and 4 PM, but you can eat whatever you want during that time. A lot of people can do that. And a lot of people find that a viable place to start. And it, there's nothing magic to it. It's just introducing some calorie restriction, giving your body a, a, a chunk of time to, to not be eating constantly and to offload some of those calories, but it does work well. And then if you, you get that person who is only eating between like 10 AM and 4 PM, and you're like, Hey, when you eat, try to eat protein first and eat that until you're like tired of the protein, then eat the other stuff. And if you can get people doing that, that it pretty, pretty quickly, you can, you can find folks that have uh, organically kind of grown into their, their own style of eating that is kind of protein forward, which is good, has some calorie restriction due to both the protein intake and the time restricted, you know, nature of their eating. And that can work really well. And I, I am seeing that as a, a strong and viable tool within this uh, kind of emphasis on change. What kind of time window? I know there's probably an optimal, maybe there isn't, but with eating, it seems like if you go... 80% of the way, you get some benefit, but it, I have a feeling that if you go 100% of the way on certain things, you get massively more benefit. So like if I'm going to do time-restricted eating and I do 12 on, 12 off, what would I get versus like, you know, 16 off, 8 on? And then with you food too, like if I totally eliminate something versus just have it a little bit, what, what difference would you expect to see in someone's health? Yeah, it's tough because if it's 12 on 12 off, let, let's just to make the numbers kind of easy. Maybe it's uh, 6, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. We're fasting. If the individual sleeps, say like eight hours, which most people should sleep at least eight hours, usually you've barely got like a two hour window between eating and, you know, going to bed or, or you know, there's just not much of a not much of a, a window there. And so. There's some factors at, at play there. I would say that you would want at least kind of a 16-hour fast to really have enough a, enough compartmentalization to get something significant out of it. Now, that said, I see people go nuts and they're doing like 20 and 22-hour fast all the time. I think that that's kind of nuts also. Like it, it's kind of a good thing taken to an extreme. I think like 16 hours most of the time is, is a not bad place to, to be on that front. And in terms of benefit, what would you think it would look like if I do 12-12 or if I do, you know, 14-10 or 16-8? You know, where where does it peak? And again, how much of a difference is there? I'm not – so this will depend a little bit on who is the person we're talking about. Like, what's their starting place? What are they trying to do? Like, is it mainly weight loss? Is it mainly – improved body composition? Is it mainly improved uh, blood glucose levels? So, I mean, starting conditions are going to be a, a big, big factor. I think that you're going to see, and also there, there will be a little bit of factor, just, you know, even somebody eating between, you, you know, a 16 hour fast. So like an eight hour eating window, the one benefit there is if you eat a huge meal, in theory, you're not going to be that hungry later. 
like, you know, the food just starts kind of backing up and you're, you're, you're maybe not as, as hungry. Whereas uh, a lot of people just kind of eat and snack morning, noon and night, you know, right up before bed and everything. But if we get enough of a, a window where things are com- compartmentalized, you'll see some weight loss, you'll see some metabolic improvements like uh, cholesterol and triglycerides improving, you'll see an improvement in blood glucose level. But again, there's, it's just so variable. Like, are we starting with somebody who is pretty metabolically healthy already? And so they just have a little ways to go? Or do we have somebody who, you know, is super metabolically broken? And, and uh, again, almost anything that we do is going to be a a step in the right direction, like the magnitudes of response are going to be a little bit dependent on severity of the starting conditions. Yeah, I remember Tim Ferriss interviewed uh, Charles Poliquin, who sadly has passed away, but he was talking about training athletes. And he said some of them, like, they can have carbs and they're okay. Some of them, they can't even look at a picture of, of carbs because they'll, they'll gain weight. And I guess there's just such variability amongst people that, you know, you, there's no absolutes is what it sounds like. Yeah, and this is one of my ass-chapped elements of, like, the biohacking scene and whatnot. Like, I, I think that people are looking, you know, like, trying to find optimization. Like, I, I, I like that concept. I'm I'm big into, like, risk-reward, you know, scenarios and, and stuff like that. I, I brew a little bit of cider, so I'm trying to optimize, um, you know, inputs and outputs and all that type of, type of jive. So I appreciate it, but when we're talking about, you know, like, health or general health topics, it's like optimizing for what exactly, you know, if if we just want to optimize for weight loss, like scale weight loss, then we may have a very different tactic than we do for just basic body composition. So like body composition, I want high protein intake. I want, you know, resistance training, really good sleep, all the, all that type of stuff. If, if all that we, we care about is, peeling weight off of the scale, then I'm just going to starve the person and they they don't need to, you know, necessarily resistance train because that's just going to keep muscle mass on them. I think it would be horrible to do that, but, you know, certain actors and actresses and different scenarios like that, that's kind of called for. So optimization is so context driven. And and, uh, I think so much of this stuff sorts itself out. Like folks will do a lot of, they'll say, should I intermittent fast or not? And it's like, well, what do you want from it? Like, what's the goal? And the goal really drives that stuff. And so, you know, if the goal is like awesome body composition, you know, six pack abs and everything, then it's like, okay, some intermittent fasting is going to be beneficial there. But if, if we're putting a premium on body composition, you know, a good muscle mass with a kind of minimized body fat levels, then a huge amount of intermittent fasting is probably going to be antithetical to that. And uh, it just because you're going to, tend to lose too much muscle mass. And so it's not really improving the the muscle to fat ratio in the body. So optimization is just, I think it's underappreciated. And when people enter into these discussions of health, they, if they would spend more time trying to delineate what it is they're trying to do, it would really help to, you know, to find the process that they're on. Well, let's say you have someone that they want to lose weight and it's stubborn. It won't, it won't go or their cholesterol is high and they can't get it down or something else is going on and they just Do you find that some people need to be unbelievably strict in order to get results? Yes and no. So like, we'll have somebody who they will say, I have a really hard time losing weight. Okay. So how buttoned up are they on their nutrition? I will promise you they're under eating protein. Like I I just guarantee it. They'll say you need to eat more protein. Well, I don't really like that stuff. 
I don't really care if you do or don't like it. If the goal is to, you know, and we may then get in and look at like, okay, do we have some digestive issues? Is there, is there appetite actually underperforming for protein and stuff? But the, the funny thing is when, when people are like, oh, it's really difficult for me. I find that there's all these other knock on considerations that are out of whack. Like they love to stay up late on their device or their gamers and they stay up till two in the morning and their sleep is terrible. It's incredibly hard, if not impossible to get somebody to lean out when their, their sleep is disordered. So, you know, it's like, is it really hard for them to lose weight or is their whole, is is the totality of their diet and lifestyle a disaster? And they just, if they're going to get anywhere near, you know, getting to something that's going to work for them, you know, it's just, uh, it's going to be a, a bigger move than somebody who is, is closer to that. You know, I, I, I don't know if this analogy works perfectly, but if somebody is wanting to save a million, make her save a million dollars, but they, they earn a hundred grand a year, but they spend 120 grand per year, that's not going to work. Like they're, they're, they're going to be bankrupt at some point. And I think people, you know, uh, get that analogy. So at some point you've got to align everything such that you're not bankrupting yourself, you know, financially. And this is true with like health and, and performance-based stuff. Now, all that said, somebody who's young and active and, and well-rested and all that stuff, like they're, they're, it's definitely going to be an easier process for them to, to lean out versus somebody who is older and more sedentary. Like I'm almost 50, I'll be 50 in, in January and I'm reasonably lean but I have to watch things a little bit closer than what I, I did in the past. And the main thing is just that my life has gotten more and more sedentary, even though I work out and go to jujitsu and stuff like that. Like just my, my work demands are such that I don't really like hike as much as I did. I don't run around and play as much as I did. So, uh, you know, used to, if I needed to lose a little bit of weight, I just tightened up my food a little bit. And four or five days later, I, I could noticeably see a change. I have to tighten things more than that at this point, because I'm a little older, my, my hormones are a little different and I've, uh, my physical activity is just less. So I, I don't know if I perfectly answered that question, but I mean, there's just, um, you know, there's a, a lot that goes into figuring out whether or not something is or isn't working and, you know, the, the how's, why's and what's it's with. It sounds like if people want a one dimensional result when they go about it in a one dimensional way, meaning like someone wants to lose weight, and they just say, oh, I'm going to cut calories. It doesn't work. It sounds like this has to be multifactorial, both in the results you're looking for and in the way you go about it. In general, yes. I mean, if you if the person says, I want to lose weight and they just cut calories, that will work, assuming they continue to do it. You know, but if they cut calories extremely, then it's going to become more difficult to to adhere to it. If they cut calories too too vigorously, they're going to sleep poorer. And then when you have poor sleep, the insulin resistance, kind of metabolic dysfunction from poor sleep feeds into making that process worse. So if we're, if we have this person in the equivalent of a prison camp, like a metabolic ward prison camp, and we force them to eat less food, um, they're going to lose weight, but it's, uh, you know, from a sustainability perspective, people living out in the, you know, free living world for the most part and needing to make decisions, then you have to figure out a strategy that, that works. And there's usually multiple factors that we have to consider with that. Sometimes not. Some people are like, and this is where like some of the simple heuristics that I've found eat as, you know, like start your meal with protein. 
eat to satiety for the most part on protein, like eat protein till you're kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm done. Then have whatever else you want with, with that thing. And ideally, you know, better, better choices, but protein is just kind of uniquely satiating. And so if people start with protein, they tend to do really well with that, putting some real attention towards sleep quality and, and duration, you know, a, a good sleep hygiene, blacked out room, cool environment, all that stuff, because sleep is so important for, uh, you know, metabolic health and, and being able to lose weight. So an emphasis on good quality sleep and then eating protein first are one of these reasonably simple, you know, tricks or hacks that I, I do think work over the uh, a pretty broad range of people if they're willing to to give them a shot. Yeah, I guess if people just follow that that simple heuristic, eat protein first. If you can, try to eat within you know an eating window. You know, still do whatever you're doing, and then and try to make sure your sleep is a bit better. That'll probably get a lot of people a long way toward better health. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and that's not a draconian plan, so it's it, you know they're probably more likely to follow it too. Right. What kind of people are attracted to your work? Are they the you know the athletes that want to optimize their health to the max, or are they people that are you know, a mess and just want to get to be feeling better again? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I, I kind of have a little bit from all of the spectrum, but I would say folks who like my, my ideal match is someone who has some complex gut issues, probably has a little bit of metabolic stuff and they've kind of run the gamut of the standard medical scene, trying to figure all that out. And, you know, it, it, it just wasn't enough to, to fix what they had going on. So that, that's kind of my, that's most of the folks that end up following me. I've got some top level athletes and, and stuff that are kind of in the mix, but that, that definitely isn't my, my main focus. If, if a person's willing and trying, honestly, is there anyone you can't help? I don't, if they still have a pulse and they're willing to do something, but I mean, it, it's uh, that readiness for change is a big, big deal. Like I've, I've worked with a couple of billionaires and some really interesting people that like, I, I worked with a guy who hired some of his employees to go out and get the foods that I was trying to keep out of the house. And then his wife gave me a budget to hire other employees to undermine the employees that were helping this guy. And so like there, there are, it, it was crazy. Like it, it was like this spy versus spy thing. It was the oddest goddamn thing I've ever done in my life. Like the, this guy was uh five, nine, 400 pounds having blackout sessions after eating because his, his vision would just be massively compromised because his blood sugars were getting into like the four and five hundreds, you know, after meals and Holy he's cow. making himself blind. So yeah, he knows he's in a disastrous situation, but, uh, He's somebody who probably has a, a 180 IQ, but also the, in some ways, like the, uh, the sensibilities of a spoiled child and had near infinite resources. And so he's paying me to help him, but then he's also paying people to undermine me. And then his wife is paying me additionally to pay somebody else to undermine the people that were, you know, like, uh, uh, he, it, there was a, a, deal where he had some some of his staff drive to a Krispy Kreme, buy a bunch of donuts, get them wrapped up in a really stable bag. And then they drove by the like the southern edge of his property and they threw the bag of donuts over the security fence or somebody was waiting to pick it up. And then I caught wind of that and had somebody in between them and they intercepted this thing before it made it to the house. And but and this was at like two in the morning, you know, so 
this guy That's had funny. super it's disordered like... sleep and and all this other stuff. And because uh, he's this techno mogul. So can I help that guy? No, I, I couldn't. Like I, because he was so committed to not helping himself that there, you know, it, it, then, then no, but anybody can change almost any situation if they're, if they're willing to make some type of a step. And sometimes the, the process is onerous. Like it is a non-trivial thing socially to change the way that we eat. Like if you walk into your workplace and you've got the shittiest, nastiest uh, food imaginable, hardly anybody's going to say anything. Like if you've just got like big gulps and, and uh, uh, you know, potato chips and all this stuff, people like, okay, well, Charlie eats pretty poorly. And that's kind of the, the, the long and short of it. But if you show up at, at work or a family function, you're like, hey, I figured out I'm gluten intolerant and I'm eating kind of lower carb. So this is kind of the way I'm eating. People will do everything in their power to undermine you, you know, and, and uh, ostracize you and make you feel bad for just trying to improve your situation, which again is I've seen similar scenarios in, in you know, like generationally poor families where the, the tendency is to overspend, uh, max out credit cards maybe do, you know, some petty crime type things. And it, and it just seems to be this multi-generational thing, but you, you see that like crabs pull in the crab pot, pulling, pulling folks down. So it is a non-trivial thing to, to change. Like shitty food is easier. It's more convenient. It tastes pretty good in the moment. You know, it's kind of gratifying. There's a social acceptance to eating poorly that you don't find from yeah. eating well. And so there's there's a lot of different layers to that. Yeah. Well, how do you tell someone to deal with those situations? It, I wonder if, you know, like, it'd be interesting if you hired, you know, X number of psychologists and kind of planned out maybe scripted answers that someone could use when they're around their family and they're bugging them. Or I've noticed too, like, you know, if I go to a certain coffee shop, I like, and I like the person behind the counter and they're like, hey, do you want a muffin? I feel bad if I say no because I'm letting them down. I know it's ridiculous, but it's just how I feel. So I'm sure yeah. other people feel like that too. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have worked on different scripting scenarios, you know, like so you're going going home for the holidays and how are, you know, how are you going to navigate that? And sometimes you need different approaches for different people. You know, like if, if mom gets super upset because you don't eat her lasagna, but you figured out you have celiac disease like that, that's just going to be a, a hard conversation. Or you, you tell mom, Hey, could you make me some gluten-free lasagna with these gluten-free noodles? I, I, I love it. And I would love to have it. But if I eat regular wheat, like I get sick and do you want to, you know, you clearly don't want to make your kids sick. So it, 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 there are definitely mitigating strategies around that stuff. And I do think that this is, again, where a health coach or a community helping someone through this process is really valuable because you you hit that scenario where it's like, oh, I had this kind of bump in the road. Like I went into my favorite coffee shop. They, they were giving out muffins or muffin samples, or they just wanted to give me one for free. And I felt really awkward turning it down. And, you know, it's it's uh, there are good strategies to be had with that. And it, it kind of varies from person to person, what you're going to do. I, I think a lot of it is just developing some self-confidence around the thing. It's like, no, I'm good. Like I just had it, easy stuff. I just had a huge breakfast. I couldn't even eat another bite. You know, I mean, like there's, so you don't even make it about me, you, you know, I do or don't eat that stuff, you know, like there's easy 
easy outs on that stuff or um just getting over like a stomach bug i i, I don't want to do anything wacky right now you know and so they're just and if you make anything about poop people will usually leave you alone so uh you, you, the the stomach bug thing is a, a good one it's a it's a good get out of jail free card yeah and i also realized too like you know i've had i've been told don't waste food you know growing up so there's there's all these pressures and there's all these things that maybe people are not even aware of that cause them to give in and it you know makes it all very hard to hold out for sure yeah i mean it's a it's an interesting interplay there where i'm raising my kids where i don't want them to waste food because it, it it's money and and also they have a tendency to get distracted at meals and then they're back in the kitchen ruining the kitchen you know like 45 minutes after we've done the proper meal and cleaned up the, the you know the area and everything so i'm like hey i want you to eat while we eat but at the same time it's like if they're just legitimately not hungry i don't want them to like force feed themselves so i mean there's there's interesting trade-offs with all that for sure very good rob what's the best way for people to find out more like how should they start their journey with you you know should they read wired to eat or you know what do you recommend I have a ton of free stuff like at robwolf.com. Like I have a bunch of shopping and food guides and, you know, how to do paleo on a budget. Like you, you just go there and you go to the, the freebies section. Like that's a super easy place to get started. I have a weekly podcast that I do with my wife called the healthy rebellion radio. And that is. We, it goes from, you know, very beginner to super, super in-depth. Like I, I do generally a, a question and answer format where people write in questions and I do the best I can to, to answer that stuff. And so, you know, those are free and easily accessible ways to, to get some more, more information on all this. Well, very good, Rob. You always got really interesting stories. You know, the Doritos roulette and now the, uh, this cloak and dagger with this billionaire and the Krispy Kremes. Yeah. I really like that stuff, and I, I really appreciate you coming back on this podcast, and it's always good to talk to you, so thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.